Standing by the Terry and Ted podcast is sponsored by Jaguar Land Rover Laval. Get out of the big city and experience a construction zone free test drive. There is such a thing. I was just saying to Ted Bird today at uh, a lunch stop. Where did the week go, Ted? Cleveland. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is episode 10 of season two. I'm going to tell you a behind-the-scenes story that will bore the shit out of you, but I'm going to tell it anyway. It's standing by. Um, it's, um, we record these episodes over the course of a week, and it feels like I just got here. And, uh, of course, uh, the uh, 20 centimeters of snow last night <laughs> uh, made me feel like I uh, didn't just get here. That made me feel like, you know... It was terrible winter weather, and that was your fault, by the way. It was the, tw- it the twenty centimeters of snow. Yeah, yeah. because the weather in B- the weather in BC while I, when I left was beautiful, and stayed beautiful, and is supposed to get shitty upon my return. Yeah. yeah. Now, by the time you're watching this or listening to this, <laughs> yeah. it's it's the springtime. Yeah. Uh, but but when we recorded Could the be. day we recorded, yeah. there were like uh, we got about twenty centimeters yes. of snow with yeah. uh, with strong icy blowing winds yes. as well for your added winter enjoyment. And I would just like to say how much I enjoyed recording. Well, I know we're not done yet because um, we're excited about episode 10. We have another guest coming. Um, but um, this has been a hoot and a half, and I don't mean maybe. It always is. Yep. And uh, we're lucky to have this facility. We're lucky to have Poseidon, our producer. Yep. And Pantelis and Mike Ward, who have been our congenial hosts. Yes. And uh, we're just, we're lucky, lucky, lucky dogs. And I'm a lucky, 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 <laughs> lucky dog. I said uh, to Ted, uh, I don't know, maybe there'll be a season two. I wonder if the sponsors will be interested. And they were. They sure were. Uh, from uh, our friends at Metla Bonheur, the Mersons, and our new sponsor, the UPS Store Canada, and of course, our... Title sponsor. Title sponsor, uh, Jaguar Land Rover Laval. And we'll start by thanking them, Ted. Every time Terry comes into town to record these podcasts, they give us a, courtesy, a courtesy vehicle for me to, <laughs> thanks for letting that go, for me to uh, ferry Terry around town in. Uh-huh. And this time around, they gave me the Discovery Sport, Thank which was goodness. perfect for this weather. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely perfect. And interestingly, we discovered today it's also invisible. Yes. It's a stealth vehicle. <laughs> We were uh, in the parking lot of, uh, of a shopping mall. We had just popped in for a bite to eat, and as we were exiting, uh, people just kept yeah, turning right in front of us. Trying to drive into us. Yeah, like yeah. W- like we weren't even there. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lady walked right out in front of us, yeah. and I thought, boy, oh, boy, this is like, uh, this yeah. thing's got stealth yeah. capability. After I said, what are we, fucking fun? <laughs> <laughs> How could you not see the big black SUV? Yeah. Uh, but apparently, man, uh, it's great in the snow. Oh, oh sure boy, is, yeah. it sure was yeah. great to have. Well, it. listen, in 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 the climate that we live in in Montreal, uh, Land Rover's all you need. Yep. Uh, you're gonna. There's nowhere you can't go uh, at no time of the year, at any time of the year. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In a Land Rover. And you can go see them at Land Rover Laval. Uh, you can see them online, LandRoverLaval.ca and JaguarLaval.ca. And our thanks to Nino. And Renato DiCubellis, the owners of that fine dealership, and Adrian McGrath, their marketing director, who's our biggest fan and keeps us uh, keeps us in those beautiful luxury vehicles. Thank you, Adrian. Yes, thank you, Adrian. Like we said, we love a family-run business, and you can go experience that for yourself. Um, they'll welcome you, even if you know, even if you're just looking. They'd yeah, be, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they'd be happy to see, to see you, yeah. and they'll uh, they'll fix you up with uh, yeah. an espresso, and uh, maybe even go over to the other side and look at the McLarens. Now, I, um, I wanted to mention this because this is one of the things that I, I, I haven't had a chance to mention over the week, and I want to mention this one more time before I go. I saw my, my great and good pal, Kevin McDonald, today. Um, Kevin's an old friend. We've known each other since grade nine, and uh, he was in town doing business, and we had a, a, a quick sandwich together, and we were talking. We somehow got talking about uh, minor league hockey teams, and I asked him, and I'm going to ask you if you've ever seen the Netflix series called Untold Crime and Penalties. I have not. Have you not seen this? No. You have to watch this. Okay. Now listen to me and listen to me good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Father. (laughs) If you're a hockey fan, and I, I, I preface this is not your average hockey story. As a matter of fact, it's almost an unbelievable story. Is it a documentary? It is. Okay. It's a documentary, I think, in four parts, 
and it came out five months ago, six months ago. I watched it. My dad, who's the world's biggest hockey fan, still playing hockey at the age of 86. That's unbelievable. I said, Dad, if you, you should watch this. I said, it's a bit unseemly and unsavory, Okay, and you may, you may not love all of it. But if you love the game of hockey, if you've watched hockey, played hockey, been to a hockey game, understand hockey, you have to you have to watch this. This is the story of a mob boss. This is a true story of a mob boss who bought his 17-year-old son a hockey team. A minor league hockey team? Yeah, called the Danbury Trashers. Okay. And the 17... ECHL, uh, yeah, you know? I think, East Coast Hockey League? I think ECHL. Yeah, okay. And he made his 17-year-old son the president and general manager. <laughs> and the story that ensues is fascinating, jaw-dropping, uh, almost unbelievable, hilarious at times, and, and vile at times. Okay. It's kind of like a real-life version of Slapshot, complete with some French-Canadian characters and other characters who have, you know, never made the big time but are still trying. Slapshot meets the Sopranos, maybe? Kind of. Yeah. That's a really good description, Ted. I highly recommend this thing. If you're on Netflix, Crime and Penalties. Is it a one-off or is it a series? It's it's not a series. It's, it's not. But a, is it in several parts? Yeah, it's in several parts. It's a documentary. It's not, you know, it's not a drama. Yeah. It's it hasn't been reenacted. It's a documentary of what happened in the nineties in Danbury, and if you love the game of hockey, you will not believe your eyes. Where's Danbury now? Connecticut. Connecticut? Yeah. yeah. It's really really something, and I needed to recommend it before. We ran out of episodes in season two. Now, has your father watched any of it and yeah. gotten back to you? Yeah, he, he he. I wouldn't say he enjoyed it. Yeah, because some of it is just unbelievable. Starting with the violence on the ice. Yeah, you're, you and know, your dad is level. a very morally upstanding man. Yes, yeah. and my, my father Im appreciates the elegance of the game. Right. You know, he was big big fan of Jean Beliveau, for example, and the Rocket, and you know, well, Gordy Howe was. You know, he, he also was an elegant skater, but was a little bit more bull in the china shop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. you didn't mess with Gordy Howe. Can no. I tell the Gordy Howe Phil Esposito I was story? Just, I was just going to ask you if you I would. Didn't, I didn't get a chance to, to tell Chris Nyland this story when we had him on the podcast, but I was telling him afterwards um, outside of the studio. I asked him if he had read Phil Esposito's book, and he had not. Phil Esposito tells a story in his book about when he first broke into the NHL, and this would have been late 50s, early 60s, and he's a rookie with the Chicago Blackhawks, and he's on left wing. And they're playing the Detroit Red Wings, and he lines up for a face-off, and he looks, and there's Gordie Howe on right wing for the Red Wings, right beside him, and he's going. And it's his, oh, my God, I've made it to the big-time moment. I'm facing off next to Gordie Howe. And the linesman drops the puck, and the puck doesn't even hit the ice before Gordie Howe plants an elbow right between Phil Esposito's eyes, right at the top of his nose. And Phil Esposito says all he, all he saw was stars, and he felt the sharp, sharp pain and tears running down his face. And he said he started to chase Gordie Howe around the ice while the play, play was going on, going, you fucking cocksucker, you were my fucking hero. <laughs> And I think it might have been Gordie Howe's welcome to the uh, the big league, eh, kid? Well, that's <laughs> exactly that's what it was. Yeah, that was Gordie Howe's welcome to the NHL moment for yeah. Phil Esposito. Yeah. We, um, um, I wanted to say thanks, by the way, to uh, Chris Nyland. Make sure I don't forget anybody. Chris Nyland, uh, Maureen Holloway, Pantelis. Um, Mark Cassavi. Ma Mark Cassavi from, uh, from La Presse. Uh, Tommy Schnurmacher. And we, Guido Grasso. Guido Grasso. I don't know if we've that forgotten was it. anyone. Did we get it? We got everybody. A Poseidon, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Here's hoping. Uh, did you guys mention Maureen? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, was, yeah, it was, it was fun to have guests. And we, we had a couple that we couldn't we couldn't scoop up. But maybe if there is a season three, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get to that. Ted, uh, uh, do tell. What is the uh, history of... Uh, your pullover that this, you have this today. This pullover, and yes. let me show you the back of it. Okay. This was a uh, this was a parting gift when I left K103 in Ganawage. Mm -hmm. The Legion in Ganawage, yep. Mohawk Legion Branch 219. Yes. Oh, isn't that something? That's beautiful. 
they gave me that as a wow, gift, that's which very was nice. very nice because they know that I'm a I'm a supporter uh, yep. of the uh, of the military. Yes, and uh, there's a strong military, uh, a strong veteran presence in Ganawage, and a very interesting veteran presence as well because. Uh, as Mohawks, they have the option of joining the Canadian or the U.S. military, oh. and most of them over the years have gone the American route, and most of the ones who've gone the American route have gone U.S. Marines mm. because uh, the Mohawk uh, culture is a warrior culture, mm -hmm. and the Marines are the tip of the spear. Yep. So that's where they want to be. And uh, I, know, uh, I know a lot of guys and gals over there. Who've served in the U.S. Marines? What are we going to do about the legions, Ted? They're uh, they're really struggling a lot of them. Well, that's a good question, and maybe it's a question that we could put to uh, our guest today because he uh, might be more uh, he might be more clued in uh, to that than I am. I think I think Mohawk Legion Branch Two Nineteen in Ganawage is doing well, though. Yep. I've gone over to their last two Remembrance Day ceremonies, which they don't hold right on Remembrance Day. They hold it; it's a little bit before usually. And it's a really interesting ceremony because it incorporates uh, Mohawk culture, Canadian military culture, and U.S. military culture mm -hmm. all at the same time. The Black Watch Pipes and Drums leads the march from yep. the Legion down to the Cenotaph. And at the Cenotaph, they have the last post, which is the British uh, sort of, I'm getting this wrong, David's going to kill me. Uh, it's like the... The, the lament, the trumpet lament for the uh, for the fallen, and then they have taps, which is the American lament for the fallen, and then they have drums and singers, uh, native drums and singers, and it's uh, it's quite moving. Mm. And let's talk about something else, or I'm going to cry. I see that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just Covered another an earlier. Yeah, podcast. A, a, yeah, this is a, this is a, a valued souvenir yeah. from my time in Ganawage. Yes. I, I love that community. Let me tell you. Yeah, and they love you. They seem to. They yes. like to give me the gears when I go back over. They always go. Somebody always says, "I thought we got rid of you," <laughs> <laughs> but it's usually in good humor. <laughs> Why don't uh, we take this opportunity to welcome our guest then, Ted, now that we've uh, talked about it? Let's do the tweet sheet very quickly before oh, we do that. Oh, I forgot about yeah. that. You know, so you know why? Out of the way. why? I never come to rehearsal. I know you don't. <laughs> Mr. Big Shot, he waltzes in at the last minute, eh, Poseidon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the tweet sheet's a little thing I do on my radio show on Light 106.7. where and It's I, a new feature for us. A new feature the on, the, on the podcast. Yes. And on the podcast, I'm able to use some of the tweets that I can't use on the radio because if I did, the station would lose its license and I'd be out of a job. Yes, sir. So uh, I, I use some of those uh, here on, uh, on the show. And also some that aren't so salty, but that I think would make Terry laugh. So we've got three for you here now. Alrighty. Let's have a look at them and see what we've got. From at Katie, is that Katie Delaney? Yeah, Katie Delaney. I love when people say shit like, your dog loves you so much, he knows how lucky he is to have you. No, he doesn't. My dog rocks, but let's be clear, he has no <laughs> fucking idea what's going on ever. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> Oy, what else we got here? <laughs> From at Salty McTavish. He had salt and pepper hair and oregano eyebrows. His lips were basil leaves. His entire head was a jar of Italian seasoning. <laughs> well written, eh? Yeah. And from at the hat store, about to have sex. Her, I can tell this is your first time. Me, Shush's marching band. What? <laughs> That's the tweet sheet, the uh, podcast version. Don't forget to listen to Ted on his uh, morning show at Light 106. 106.7 uh, 106.7 FM online at light1067.ca right. on the iHeartRadio app and on your smart speaker. And don't forget to listen to me getting out of my chair weekday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> At about, I don't know, 9.30, All right, do you want to say hi to David O'Keefe? I do. How do you do, David O'Keefe? Hi, David. Oh. Hi, gents. How Hello. are you? We're uh, fine and dandy, I think. I don't even know where to start, uh, Dave, in introducing you. Um, history professor, author, broadcaster. What am I missing? Writer. You've done uh, a lot. 
And you continue Old to do guy, a lot. Uh, yeah, you know, just go on. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. That's please, enough. please go on about <laughs> please, me. Please, keep going. Writer? You didn't say writer. Did you say well, writer? Well, he, yeah, he's a writer for okay. sure. Yeah, well, yes. I said author. Yeah. Okay. So well, authors say- as a rule generally write. Is yeah. author a writer? <laughs> it is, as, as a matter of fact. Okay. David's field of expertise is uh, military history, Canadian military history, uh, World Wars One and Two. Probably more two than one, though, would you say, Dave? Yeah, definitely too. Yeah, yeah, if you ever if you if you ever want to be bored stiff, go on a long car ride with me and David <laughs> while we discuss the uh, the merits of the 12th SS and their battlefield proficiency versus their morality off the yeah. battlefield mm. and uh, surely you'll be saying, "Could you let me off here? <laughs> I'll just get on the bus." I got to pee right now. Yeah. Yeah. How are you, Dave? Good, good. Can't complain. The snow has kept me down here in my bunker. I mean, first it was uh, Omicron, now it's this. Now, how does the pandemic uh, affect uh, a professor or an educator? Well, when it started, we were online exclusively. So in other words, this is the way I was teaching the entire time. Um, But then in September, we went back. But it's kind of like mercenary teaching. In other words, we come in directly to our classes, teach our classes, masks, everything, boom, and we're gone. So we're still dealing with our students, but we're dealing with them like this when it comes to uh, office hours and things like that. So, you know, today wasn't bad. We kind of had a bit of an option because of the snow. So, you know, we went online for what we had to do. So, you know, there's some good things that come out of it, but there's nothing like being in the classroom. David, speaking of that, um, what's the state of um, of the the current generation vis-a-vis interest in history and making a generation that's getting farther and farther away from D-Day um, understand what it, what took place and how important it is. is. Is there a high level of curiosity still like when we were kids? Without a doubt, yeah. That's Great. That's the fascinating part. And it's, it's not like they're coming in like when we came into it and we learned about World War II. I mean, let's face it, our, our parents, our grandparents were involved with it. Um, you know, it was something that was kind of ever present in our life. Um, now it's not, but the curiosity is still there, which is amazing. But I find myself like, for instance, when Ted and I get together, there's a lot of things we don't have to discuss (laughs) at a very basic level. But, you know, for instance, I just, I'm teaching a world war two course at the college and I have to start off with a complete explanation of world war one. I can't just take it for granted anymore that people understand right. that World War I was 1914 to 18, right? So you've got to really build things up now. And that's about the only thing that I would find is a challenge, but the curiosity is there. And once you open the door, holy God, they, it's, the interest is insane. It's off I, the charts. I'm curious um, because I've been faced with this a number of times, always, always been fascinated by younger cousins younger people around a table with a glass of wine and you get into these discussions with you know you know my buddies bright kids or something and what i've been faced with a number of times that's come out of uh, kids that were in university is well history is written by the victors so i don't know how true all of that is do you face that and how do you counter that Well, to a certain degree, I mean, look, there's many schools of thought in history, and that's one. I would argue it's the most cynical one. I mean, the best part about doing it is if you can get people into the archives and see the evidence themselves, that sounds funny. Like, I mean, this sounds like, you know, Ted and I on the road trip, but no, 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 not at all. Um, Being, and I always tell my students this, actually getting into an archive where you see the documents that were created about an event that happened 80 years, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I always tell them it's kind of like an Indiana Jones moment. You know, right. in other words, plenty of Nazis, no, sta- snow, no snakes. But at the same time, you never know when you turn the page how your understanding may change as well. So there's an intoxicating nature. So when anybody sort of says something like that where they're completely dismissive and cynical, the best thing to do is just get them involved with actually researching. And you can do that online now. So much has been digitized. So much is available now for anybody who would sort of doubt the the beauty of history, as I call it. Right. Is it dry, though, Dave, when you're going through those archives? Like, is the, is the material... Uh, just, you know what I mean by dry, right? Yeah, Just yeah. it doesn't well, jump off the page I mean, at you. You can imagine the army wasn't writing a drama. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's you know there's right. a lot of what we call army bump. 
But at the same time, depending on what you're looking at, sometimes, you know, when you're flipping through pages of a war diary and I'm, every unit in the Canadian Army, the British Army, the American Army used to keep war diaries. Some of them are very matter of fact. In other words, whether today was this, whether today was that. And that's about it. And then you get others like the Calgary Highlanders War Diary here in Canada. Every day is five pages of beautiful flowing prose about everything from command to the weather, to the Germans, to this, to that. And it just takes you right back. So it's nowhere near as dry as you'd probably think it is. You know who was in the Calgary Highlanders was the late Gordon Atkinson. Right. Who was a Montreal yeah. broadcaster and a terrific writer. And yeah. as soon as you said that, I thought yeah. maybe Gordon Atkinson was <laughs> yeah. was writing the history of the yeah. Calgary Highlanders. Yeah, and a great raconteur. Oh, was he ever? Yeah, yeah. he really could. Yeah. yeah, he could tell a story. Um, is the, um, Can you counter, do, uh, do the kids challenge you in a, in a class? David, do they or do they try and challenge you? Like, if, if, <laughs> you, like I, I, for example, I, I don't know how many arguments I've had about Churchill. There's a lot of, you know, there. I guess it's it's in. I suppose some of it is subjective, but there are some people that think, you know, Churchill had. You know, I've I've had a discussion with kids who say Churchill was uh, a racist, a white supremacist, yeah, all the rest a, of it, and a poser, and you know, he really had nothing to do with the victory. It was you know, but da da da. Those kinds of arguments when they come up, you know, depending on how much wine I've had at the dinner table, they enrage <laughs> they enrage me, and I do my best to to to, to defend the old <laughs> the old guy because um, you know, and I, you I end up going if it wasn't for him, we'd be speaking German, <laughs> like I'm, basically. <laughs> your finest hour. Right? <laughs> so how do you, how do you, I, I guess it goes back to the cynicism. Do you counter that with facts? Of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, all right. Okay. Yes. That's, that's all it takes, <laughs> I, is it? Yeah. No, you got to bring it in. But in this day and age, you got to bring in the evidence. And you have to, in some ways, like I said, you have to let them see it for themselves. Right. Especially when they're that cynical or they, they're that, um, wedded in their opinions already. I mean, that's the basic things. But the other thing too is how you bring it across as a teacher where you can just lay it out. You can say, okay, here are the various interpretations that we have. Let's discuss it. Let's go through that. And that's much more challenging. And it actually, they respond a lot better because they're doing the thinking about it as opposed to a professor just simply, right. you know, something out there and saying, follow my doctrine. And do you, you, have, to, do you have to go all the way back to the Archduke? Is that where you got to start? Close to really, eh? <laughs> yeah, it is, and like, and it's funny because I remember years ago there was um, a professor at Annapolis in the, the uh, Naval College in the states, and you know he would come in and he was you know this was back in I guess probably late two thousands, and um, he was coming in and of course he would start his course and he'd be like okay so back in Vietnam we were doing this and back in Vietnam back in Vietnam. And he turned around and he realized that all the cadets sitting in front of him were born after the Gulf War. Wow. And he went, wow. oh my God, the touchstone isn't here anymore. Yeah. And it's sort of the same thing that we're faced with. But wow. like I said, once you lay that touchdown, uh, touchstone down, the curiosity goes off the charts. Dave, I want to ask you about uh, one of your uh, two best-selling books, the first of the two, uh, your book about Dieppe, One Day in August. Dieppe Uncovered. Dieppe is, uh, I guess, would be the darkest day in Canadian military history. Uh, the raid on Dieppe in 1942. You kind of, not kind of, you you basically re, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking Strip for? Strip down the beast and rebuild it? Well, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. And, and what I want to know is, A, before you tell us about, you know, what you came across and how you came across it, that you came up with this new perspective on the Dieppe raid. Oh, boy. Well, that was many, many years ago. And I told you, you know, part of the fun of being in the archives is finding something new. Yeah. And uh, this was back in 1995. And they were just declassifying on the 50th anniversary of World War II. They were declassifying all this amazing stuff, like can stuff I, that was ultra secret. Can I just interrupt for a second and just uh, to give it some context for people yep. who may not be following along. Dieppe, I was taught in high school that it yep. was the war's biggest disaster, biggest failure. And... Uh, you know, cost was the biggest disaster in, in Canadian uh, for Canadians history. in World War yep. II history, and and it was it we I was taught that it was just a disaster, and you decided and that to, the lessons learned from Dieppe were applied on D Day, right? Yeah, 
Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Put it in more context. You're right. It's a one day what we call butcher and bolt raid. In other words, it's Canadian troops with some British troops uh, sailing across the English Channel, raiding the French port of Dieppe, which was under German control, and then making it back. Unfortunately, um, things did not go well on August 19th, 1942, and uh, 907 Canadians were killed in a morning. Now, to put that in perspective, um, not to lessen anything that happened in Afghanistan, but we lost 150 soldiers in Afghanistan over 13 years. Imagine oh. losing 907 Canadians in a morning. Good God. So that kind of puts it into perspective. But what really took this to another level was the fact that nobody could really explain the intent in other words, there were a lot of excuses that were kind of floated out there and everybody went, yeah, no, that's not the reason we're there. And but nobody could say anything. And so when the war ended, because it was such a disaster, basically nobody talked about it. And then as the years went on, there were questions that were asked and again, sort of half assed excuses. Well, we were there to, as Ted said, we were to learn lessons for two years later. Nope. No, that wasn't the case. We were there to support the Russians. Well, not really, not in the sense that you think, or, you know, we were there to another excuse, another excuse, another excuse. So, you know, on the 50th anniversary of World War II, they started declassifying um, what we call ultra secret material, which is above top secret. So in other words, you have, you know, a confidential secret, most secret, top secret, and then you have ultra secret. Very limited distribution, maybe about 10,000 people in the allied sphere knew about it at the time. And what I discovered was um, a report about a commando unit, which was really amazing, didn't know it existed, that had been raised specifically to capture material to help code breakers at Bletchley Park, the famous code breaking center. If you've ever seen the imitation game. Yeah. Well, yeah, Great Alan film. Turing. Alan Turing couldn't do what Alan Turing did if it wasn't for some blood and, you know, blood and treasure that these guys brought back. So anyway, uh, they, uh, they raised this unit specifically for that. And as I was reading the report, here was this one tiny little throwaway line that was the beginning of a journey. And it just said the party at Dieppe did not reach its target. And so now for the first time in our understanding, what we call the historiography, the history of the history of Dieppe, we have a connection to one of the greatest secrets of the Second World War and one of the darkest days in Canadian military history. And so that basically is where my research began. And it took about 15 years and going through about 150,000 pages of material before I was able to test the significance of what this was all about. Basically, in a nutshell, they were putting on this operation to capture material to help touring at, uh, at Bletchley Park, which is incredible. Um, was, was, so the raid was a distraction from the real mission? Well, part of it, yeah. Part of it was they couldn't get to their target if it wasn't for the raid itself. In other mm -hmm. words, they needed cooperation of the other units to get to the target. So they ended up building what they call an infiltration plan. In other words, we're going to get to the target and an ex exfiltration plan. We're going to get this material out. And the idea was that they never put these operations on unless they were always covered by a larger operation to throw the Germans off the scent of what they were oh, after. Wow. The, the idea was if the Germans ever figured out that they were going after anything to do with the famous Enigma machine and that they actually succeeded in getting it, then the Germans would then upgun or change their whole cryptographic thing. So imagine, you know, playing poker and being able to, you know, read your opponent's hand, every single hand. That was the advantage that the Allies would have with this kind of information. Let's tell so people about that. Tell people what the Enigma machine was for people who don't know. All right, Enigma machine actually it, it looks like a typewriter. Yeah. You can check it out. You can go yeah. and Google it. There's plenty of simulators, yeah. which are really cool, by the way. And what you do is, if I'm sending you a message, um, basically you will have an Enigma machine. I will have one, and then we have a series of instruction manuals, key sheets, code books that will tell us how to set the machine up every day. And basically we do that, we follow the procedure, and then we both are, um, you know, uh, our machines are set up the same way. Then what you do is you just punch your message in letter by letter, and it scrambles the letters. This is what is called encipherment. So you encipher each letter. And then basically I send the message to you over radio. It's all scrambled, looks like gobbledygook. And then you, because you have the machine at right. the other end and know how it's set up, you put it down. So you get a message that says curf pluggle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But here's the, here's the kicker. Um, the and this gives you an idea of um, the the brilliance of a character like Alan Turing. 
There were two versions of the German Enigma in the Navy, used by the Navy. The first one, called a three-rotor, because it had three rotors on it that helped scramble everything. The odds of breaking this were 150 million, million, million to one without any captured material to help speed it up. Wow. Okay, so to put it into very uh, local terms, it's like winning the Lotto 649 every week for 150 straight years. Wow. Jesus, Murphy. isn't that unbelievable? So, what were they? What were they after exactly at at Dieppe, David? Were they after a machine or were they after documents? They were after the code books that helped with the machine. Okay. So basically, by the time we get to 1942, the Germans are starting to introduce a new upgun version. So it's called a four-rotor. And I, when I was going through the files, I actually had to look this number up because I've never seen a number so long in my life written down. And it was the odds have now gone from 150 million, million, million to, get this, 92 septillion to one. Septillion. Yeah. Septillion. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I had to look it up on the right? Wow. That's crazy. And another fascinating element of the whole Dieppe thing is the the officer who oversaw the raiding party. Yeah, well this was this was kind of the curveball that was thrown in because the the yeah, get ready for this. The man who raised the unit and was responsible for these kind of operations was Ian Fleming, who created the Bond series. So you can imagine in the historical community, when I dropped the name Ian Fleming, you can imagine how many eyes rolled. Um, and you can imagine how difficult it was for me because I had to go back and figure out who the real Ian Fleming was because a lot of people think he was Bond himself. He wasn't. But he was extremely important in naval intelligence, without a doubt. David, how close – I was always fascinated as a kid by the um, the Gemini rocket program. So that, you know, as a young kid, that led me down the road to Werner von Braun, and, and that led me to, you know, the V2, and then that led me to learning about how advanced the Germans were towards the end of the war, their technology – with, you know, the jet-powered Messerschmitts and, and all of the like, where yeah. the technology was really kicking into high gear as the Allies were trying to, you know, put an end to the war. How close were they to turning it around? Well, that's, it's an interesting counterfactual, what if in history, because, you know, despite how intelligent they may have been from a technological perspective, unlike, and get back to Churchill, there wasn't really um, a receptive response to understanding how to use that technology at the top end in the, in the Third Reich. Got you. I mean, you know, Hitler and the boys were not the brightest bulbs. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. came to things yeah. like that. They were highly anti-intellectual. Right. Whereas that's where, you know, Churchill. Churchill was extremely receptive to science, technology, you know, understood how to employ it. And I don't think there was any way that the Germans were going to be able to, given the corrupt nature of, of the Nazi regime, um, where everybody had their hands in their pockets and, you know, where they were going to actually um, create a systematic way of employing these things. Like, for instance, you mentioned the Messerschmitt. Yeah. The Messerschmitt was an absolutely fantastic fighter. You know, I mean, could have changed things in the air. And then somebody got it in Hitler's mind that it would be better as a dive bomber. So he took it out of service to re retrofit it. Wow. And again, it, it was not based on anything except graft and greed. In other words, somebody wanted to line their pockets right. by getting a military contract. Oh, so, Adolf. So there you go. He was crazy. Yeah. I, 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 this is, now that we're talking about uh, Der Fuhrer, mm -hmm. um, I would like to ask you if you are, I'm, troubled by the ease with which people now use Hitler as a meme, as a comparison. You know, mm. we've seen it a lot in the, you know, when we're recording this, the, uh, the, uh, the trouble in Ottawa is still continuing and, uh, you know, people are comparing the prime minister to Hitler and, you know, people use the Hitler and his, his face and his poster as a sort of, uh, you know, like a, an easy yeah, yeah. way to demonize people, which, and I think to myself, is 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 that because we're not teaching people properly about what this guy was all about? Is he like a cartoon character now? 
Yeah, I think there's a mix, Terry. I mean, it's one of those things like, you know, we take a look at, you know, where do we get that from? Largely, I would argue it comes from Seinfeld, right? The Seinfeld with the soup Nazi. You know, that idea. <laughs> I never thought you know, of no, that. No, no, no. That, yeah. that idea. But, they, but that's interesting. I think it's really wow. cool because it's, it's kind of like, you know, taking a certain word yeah. um, that is extremely offensive mm-hmm. and meant something and owning it yourself and changing the meaning of it, if you right. know what I mean. Right. So in some cases, I can understand that. But no, you're right. I mean, a lot of it is being thrown around, you know, like I've, you know, even my kids, you know, I come down to my kids over something. Yeah. Oh, stop being a Nazi. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, really? Yeah. Stop. You know, it. yeah. it's like, yeah, it's, you know, I, fr- it's I find like, it, tr- no, I find it, it really, troubling a bit, you know? Yeah. You need to sit back and truly understand the context of what you're talking about. And yeah. that's the key. And that's actually one of the challenges. And I see that in class. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, that's what I was lecturing about this week was the rise of Nazism. What is fascism and the seductive nature of Nazi Germany at the time and why it was appealing. And the students are blown away because now they're starting to realize, oh my God, there's a lot more to this than like yeah. you said, just a yeah. meme. Well, you had mentioned earlier, Dave, that you have to start with World War One. It was the aftermath of World War One that led to World War Two. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big lessons I try to impart on the students is never get into a situation where your level, your standard of living is going to drop to the level where a character like Adolf Hitler is going to seem like a messiah. Yeah. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe I'm getting, you know, a bit more older and fiscally conservative. <laughs> well, I, you know, but I, I think that that has something to do with, you know, my, uh, sometimes I feel like a grandpa on the Simpsons because, you know, if I'm, <laughs> if you're anywhere where there's a memorial and I'm, I'm not talking about these last few weeks, but if you're anywhere near a war memorial, it's actually appalling the way some people behave in front of yeah. a memorial. And, and I don't understand why. I don't know. Is that because people aren't taught what a war memorial well, is just, or what not, the sacrifice? They're not properly raised or educated. Yeah, I and that's yeah. I want to go. Warrior attention. raised by yeah. wolves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it does. does well, I guess. It, I mean, I, I guess you can look at it another way too. The fact that you know we haven't had wars like World War One and World War Two kind of in our you know in our fate face is a good sign and maybe sometimes that kind of ignorance may actually be a sign that the job was done really well by those guys many Mm. years ago if you know what i mean i remember a a veteran saying that or i actually asked a veteran i said what do you think and he goes to be honest with you ignorance is bliss it means i did my job they don't have to think about wow most of those guys are gone now david and we had tommy schnurmacher on earlier this season and tommy is uh the son of Holocaust survivors, and most of them are gone as well. Just the years have have, have taken their toll. And we talked to Tommy about um, the responsibility of, of carrying on the legacy and keeping the memory uh, alive. Do we, as the descendants of the people of the greatest generation who won that war, do we have a responsibility as well to keep their legacy alive? And if we do, how are we doing? Well, you're preaching to the choir, obviously, yeah. on this one. But yeah, I think we do. But I as mean, a society, look, how are we doing? Well, I mean, that's hard to say. I mean, that that's a larger question of just generally the question of appreciation for anything in life, right? I mean, take a look at the world we live in. No matter how screwed up or how fucked up it is at certain times, it's a lot better than the one that they had to live through. Mm. You know, you think about the depression then into a full world war, which cost something like 70 or 80 million lives all over the world. And to come out of that and to have, you know, right now, 75, almost 80 years of relative peace, you know, compared to that, that, you know, that says a lot. And I think there's a question of appreciation with that. I mean, when I was in Holland and you know the story with the Canadians and the Dutch. The Canadians liberated the Dutch at the end of the war, but they liberated them from two things. They liberated them from the Nazis, but the Nazis were starving them. So the Canadians liberated them from hunger. And when I was over there, I saw a couple of amazing um, examples of appreciation, and there's nothing like the Dutch. The Dutch oh, understand appreciation. You ain't kidding. You ain't kidding. But yeah. And the first one, it was this, we were filming um i think it was one an episode of war junk we were at grosbeek military cemetery and we were standing there getting the drone up getting ready and one of the most beautiful women i've ever seen comes up on her bike ride dutch woman a beautiful Paul, dutch woman Paul, beautiful <laughs> yeah you yeah, never see them no. yeah big woman with a dutch accent <laughs> what a surprise so yeah she drives up you know and and she just looks at us and she says hello and she looks into the cemetery and then just puts her arms out 
puts it up here. Oh God! Puts her head down, does a little prayer, jumps on her bike, and takes off. And but the sound guy just looks at me and goes, "That was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen." <laughs> <laughs> Jesus! And it was like, in many ways, it was. And then we were up there, and Ted, I'm not sure if you ever met Joe Nixon, um, a veteran with the Black Watch. He was a scout platoon commander, and we were filming with him up in Holton the Holton Military Cemetery, which is up in the northern part. And it was just myself and my production partner, Wayne Abbott, and we were filming with Joe, and there was nobody in Holton. And uh, he was walking through the graveyard, and we were doing everything, and this car pulls up, and it was extremely expensive. Like, it was just, you could tell that whoever was getting out of it had a bit of cash, almost like a Land Rover. And, um, and so as a result, um, they got out, a very well-dressed couple, probably in their late 60s at this time. And this was about 10 or 12 years ago. And they uh, they noticed Joe. And they came over to me. They could see I was talking to him. And they said, "Was this, did he fight here? Was this a veteran? And I said, yes. And they they just go googly in, in Holland for veterans. I mean, they're rock stars. You know, they'll, they'll be putting their babies up as if the Pope is there just for them to, you know, have the veteran touch their hands. And I asked them, you know, we started talking and they met and whatever. And I said, well, what brings you here? And they said, oh, well, um, and you can tell the way they were dressed and what they were driving, they were extremely wealthy. And they said, well, um, uh, we come here every year. Um, this is a very special day for us. We were kids during the war, and it was the Canadians who liberated us. And we would not have eaten if it wasn't for the Canadians. And this is our wedding anniversary. Wow. And we come here every wedding anniversary to pay our respects to the Canadians who gave us the life that we have Jesus. before we go out for dinner. Wow. Now think about that. Two people with the means to be anywhere else in this world who will every year come to the Holton Cemetery to, just to say thank you to the men who risked their lives from across an ocean that had no skin in the game, so to speak, because they stood up for principle. That's some gratitude for you. I uh, I have uh, every year I see the pictures and I don't know what the 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 occasion is where children bring candles to the graves of, of the Canadians yeah. and and um, that's in Holland as well in Holland yeah. yeah this is these are the the Dutch children are are taught from a very young age and it's passed on from generation to generation and the very first time I was overseas in the very first time I took a trip to Europe. We landed in Amsterdam and found ourselves, you know, not too long after we were in a hotel, um, they, they recommended a bar down the street and we wandered into that bar and sat down and said we wanted to try a Dutch beer, a popular Dutch beer, what, what, what could he recommend? And the bartender said, where are you from? And we said, we're Canadian. And he said, I have just the thing for you. And he put two beers down in front of us. And we went to pay for it, and he said, no, Canadians don't pay for drinks in my bar. And that's 50 years after the war. Yeah, work. and yeah. it, um, I, Ted and I talk about how uh, as we get older, we cry easier. <laughs> <laughs> it be, it's putting a giant lump in my throat because the appreciation of that sacrifice um, is important to me, and that's why I asked you the question of how we could pass yeah. it along because the Dutch are as you said, rock stars at this, that they teach kids from, you know, a very, very young age that they owe the Canadians a debt of gratitude, the Canadians who were born over there. Should I talk about Mercen Automotive while you pull yourself together? Yes, you would. <laughs> Mercen Automotive, one of our returning sponsors on the Standing By Terry and Ted podcast, and we thank them for that. Terry and I have been doing business with the Mercens for at least 25 years. They're a third-generation family business. Uh, tires are their specialty, but they also do all manner of uh, automotive uh, maintenance and repairs at their shop on Saint-Jacques, just west of Cavendish. Uh, they can do old-school internal combustion engine cars. They can do electric cars, and we're going more and more in that direction. And Merson's mechanics are trained and equipped to uh, take care of your electric vehicle. And as I like to say, if you drive the Flintstone car, uh, they can fix that for you, and they've got a podiatrist on site to have a look at your feet because yeah. those are the brakes. Don't yeah. you know? Go see them before you hear this. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that when you were a kid, you turned the key? Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> They're online at mercenauto.com. David, how did you get interested in this when you were a kid? What what turned your sights towards history? Um, always a passion. Always a passion. Where'd I mean, it come also from? too, my family, I've got a bit of a military history in the okay. family. Yeah. That always helped, you know, like father, grandfather and his brothers in World War One. My father and uncle in the Navy in World War II, uh, uncle in Korea, cousins in the Gulf War. And then, of course, I ended up, you know, doing something silly and joining the Black Watch many years ago, <laughs> um, where I did two and a half years of just looking good in a uniform. And then I ended up <laughs> continuing on. And that was about it. But it's just, yeah, it was it was, it was the stories. Um, but also, too, it was the fundamental appreciation right from the start. There was just something different. You know what I mean? There was yeah. something different. And it was just always a passion. And I'm fascinated by decision-making. I'm fascinated by leadership, responsibility, and the principles that were behind what they were doing. What's our military's current shape? Are we in good shape military-wise? Would you think? Are, have we ever been? I, I mean, that, really, I don't know. In, in peacetime, it, yeah, the Canadian, the Canadian Army is never in the best of shape during peacetime. That's okay. just the way it is. I mean, we, we're based on a militia culture where basically it's about 10% regular force and then 90% ready to expand. Right. So, I mean, when I was in 30 years ago, um, it was horrible. I mean, it was retrenchment, 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 budget cuts. I mean, we, we didn't yeah. even have, you know, blanks to run around. We were screaming bang, bang, budget cuts. Um, and it's, it's kind of the same way. Well, I don't know if it's the same way now, because remember, we've just come out of a 15 year war. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, institutional memory that's still around yeah. and a lot of the lessons learned. So our sharp end is very sharp. Well, um, you know, for instance, JTF two and our special operations, which are in Ukraine right now, I mean, they are as good as anybody on the face of the earth, but it's just, and their Navy and our air force, but you know, we're relatively small. Um, I would we be, can pack a bunch. I would like to uh, start a petition to buy the poor buggers, uh, who fly the snowbirds, new planes. They're, they're flying like 66 Pontiacs. Those poor guys, those old Tudor yeah, jets, yeah, those old Tudor yeah. jets. I've been waiting for the Cause I, the snowbirds is another thing that makes me cry. <laughs> <laughs> When the snowbirds go overhead, it's like, there they are! There's the snowbirds! And I always think it's time for new jets for those boys, those men and women. It's about time that they had new uh, aircraft. You're right, though, Dave. Times have changed. Times change from wartime to peacetime. I uh, recall hearing, and you can tell me if this is correct or not. I think it is. At the end of World War II, Canada had the third largest navy in the world. Yeah, that's true. And the fourth were the Harry Krishnas. So, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> Mainly because the Japanese and German Japanese navies were at the, the bottom German of the ocean. And the Italians. And the Italians. You forget the, the Italians. Oh, that's true. They yeah. had quite a formidable navy yeah. in the beginning, they did, didn't as they? A yeah. of fact, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> the British ranked the Italian navy as their number one foe going really? into the war. The Italian navy, the Japanese navy, and the Germans were three. But yes, you're right. In terms of um, numbers of vessels, the Canadian Navy was the third largest navy on the planet at the end of the war. At the end of the war, but we didn't have uh, battleships or cruisers, or we had what corvettes and destroyers. Mostly corvettes, destroyers, and a couple of cruisers, including one that my dad was on. Oh, really? HMCS, yeah. Yeah, HMCS Prince Robert, which actually has quite a, a very interesting story in the Pacific and Pearl Harbor, believe hmm. it or not. But. Here's a question for you, and I saw you talking with some other uh, historians online about this the other day. What was more important in World War II, the Battle of the Atlantic or the Eastern Front? <laughs> Throwing it against me, are you? Well, no, not at all. I just, I'm curious no, to, is there, there, is there a consensus or is it an ongoing debate? Um, the consensus for years has always been the Eastern Front, but now we are starting to look at that. And there, there's some good arguments. In other words, in hindsight, if we look back, we realize the Germans didn't have the capability of winning it. The perception was completely different at the time because the U-boat was considered to be extremely potent. And, you know, in certain choke point areas, 1941, 42, it looked like it could have happened. And so the idea is very simple that, you know, if Russia goes under, the Allies can continue to fight. It won't be great, but the Allies can continue to fight as long as the Atlantic Ocean stays open. Because you can use Great Britain as a big aircraft carrier and you yeah. can build up and either attack or prevent the Germans from getting across. 
But I don't think the Russians have much of a hope if the Western allies go down. There'll never be a second front. They won't get the vital uh, equipment that they need to rebuild their industrial sectors. Or if it is, um, you never know how it's going to play out on the Eastern front. Speaking so I, you know, I tend to argue it's, it's the Atlantic. Speaking of U-boats, uh, David, um, Canada played a, a fairly big part in the Merchant Marine, didn't we, in getting supplies over there? And that that in itself was quite a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous uh, mission. Yeah, not just the Merchant Marine, but also our Navy. I mean, our yeah. Navy essentially was built to escort convoys. Yeah. That's really what it was in battle U-boats, and that's exactly what they did. As a matter of fact, the new Tom Hanks movie, um, yeah. Greyhound, pays a, a, a nice little yeah. you know tribute to the Canadians and the, and the Americans yeah. and the Brits who put together. Yeah, just tiny. Dicky. Um, but yeah, I mean, you think about it, and I had my – it's funny. My father and my uncle were, um, were on destroyers and corvettes, wow. and my, uh, my great uncle was actually a wireless operator on merchant vessels. Wow. And he, the stories he would tell my grandmother Oof. about, you know, here they were at night, it was dark. You can't hear anything. And if you've ever been out in a cruise ship in the middle of the night, you know how black, what yeah. black is, yeah. right? And you're sitting there and then suddenly you hear an explosion and you know somewhere in your convoy, somebody's taken one. Yeah. And then suddenly the panic on the telegraph, yeah. knowing full well you can't do a thing. You that just have, have to keep fun. going. Hey? That must have been fun Crazy. in yeah. the dark of night worrying about U-boats. I mean, the bravery of those men. Yeah. It's really a I knew a, I knew a guy in Charlottetown, Jim McLean, who served on a Corvette on escort duty, and he used to lo- he was one of those guys who loved to tell the stories. I sure miss that, David. I sure miss talking to those old guys. We were very fortunate to grow up yeah, when we did and to be able to sit and listen to their stories. And I always found they were very appreciative of anyone who would listen to their stories yeah. or who was curious about their experiences. Well, I mean, as a historian, you know, I've benefited from that. You know, I, my, the second book I did, uh, you know, Seven Days in Hell, was based in large part on the interviews I did with the Black Watch, the Black Watch soldiers who fought in Normandy. And, um, you know, it's an amazing, I, there's nothing like personal testimonies to set the stage to, to, for a reader to understand tone, to understand the personal nature of what it was like. Um, it's very difficult years later, of course, memory is fallible to use what they say as fact when it comes to certain things like here I was there and I was there at this time and whatever you can't, but you are not going to pass up the opportunity of saying, you know, what it was like for, you know, somebody making their first kill of a German soldier thinking he would be absolutely elated. And then realizing when he looked down, he saw the face of a 15 year old boy and realized that was my enemy. Um, uh, did you, um, David, when you were a kid, did you build war models? Oh, did I ever? Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. I, I was just, you know, I was looking at the, uh, the aircraft on the book behind you and thinking about, I was a, for some reason, I was a big fan of the Spitfire and the Mosquito, and I don't know how, how many, boy, I must have sniffed a lot of glue back then, oh, because yeah, no I don't doubt. know how many of those I built. I was just oh, fascinated yeah, by World War II arc- aircraft. Oh, God, yeah. I did the same thing. I, I started probably building them when I was about seven. I built wow. until I was probably about 17 until I discovered women. Um, and then I realized, yeah, no, there's better models I'd be <laughs> yeah. going after. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, no, they're amazing. And funny you mentioned Spitfire. I was just reading something the other day. Of course, uh, is it Hobbyville? The one in Dorval? Yes, yeah, Hobbyville, yeah. Finally, it's like closing after so many yeah. years. Yeah. And I've, they were saying that the, the top-selling model – of all time, and it still is the Spitfire. There was a, um, was I with you when we went to Ottawa yeah. to see it? Yeah. This is, this is another, another get a hold of yourself story. Yeah. Uh, some millionaire British guy refurbished, rebuilt uh, a Spitfire, and we were invited out to Ottawa to the airfield to watch it, and it did a flyover, and it did another flyover. And I turned to Ted and I said, it's just the greatest thing ever. <laughs> well, what I remember about that is you like and history th- coming to life. And there were some pilots there. There were some World War II pilots yes. there to watch it. And Terry went over and shook their hand and thanked them. And they were they were almost taken aback, yeah, eh? that's right. Like, that's how humble yeah. those guys yeah. were. They were, well, it's just, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, they asked us to do that. So yeah. we went and did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they showed me how to fly yeah. it. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, what I, they, they really were the greatest generation, eh, David? 
They were. They really they were. were. Let me ask you, um, before we let you go, I want to ask you about the poster behind you because I can't take my eyes off it. Or Junk Judo Beach. What's that? What's going on there? Well, that was about, uh, ooh, I guess it would be almost 10 years ago now. Um, we discovered, we, we went over and discovered. We knew it was there. We just hadn't found it yet. <laughs> so we ended up digging up um, one of the bunkers. This was actually the Tobruk bunker, which did um, a lot of the killing and the fighting on that day. And it was right in front of the Juno Beach Center. And they had a command bunker. And then they also had a, an observation bunker, but they didn't have the third one, the fighting bunker. So we actually were figuring out where it was. We brought in backhoes. We had ground penetrating radar. We were able to find it. And then we were able to uncover it, which is great because this was right on the, must have been the 70th anniversary, I suppose. And um, it was wonderful um, to be able then to take that back to uh, a guy by the name of Jim Parks. And Jim Parks landed, I believe it was the Queen's Own, right in front of that. Is, uh, so that, that bunker, that what, bunker was right equipped there with... actually has, like where you can see we're standing. Yeah. Right behind there's a hole, there's yeah. a turret. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Germans basically, when the fighting started, would prop an MG-34 and MG-42 oh on top of that wow. and then open up literally at point blank as the ramps were coming down. Oh, boy. And this actually did a lot of, sadly, a lot of the killing of Canadian soldiers on that day. So you can imagine how historically important that is to telling wow. the story, right? To, to genuinely developing what we talked yeah. about before, right. appreciation right. for what these guys went through. I'm uh, looking for a way to end on a happy note. But I got to ask sure. him. I got to ask David one more thing. Okay. Did, did I dream this, or or are you thinking about putting together uh, a Normandy battlefield tour? As a matter of fact, I've got five going next summer. Wow, really? Fact, eh? Yeah, we're doing yeah doing a World War One battlefield tour. We're doing a Black Watch, mostly Normandy. We're doing Bletchley to Normandy. And I'll be doing a couple of Dieppe ones, obviously. And have you got, so, uh, is there still uh, space for people if they're interested yeah, in getting on board? Yeah, you can check it out online. Just Google me, David O'Keefe Battlefield Tours, and you'll be able to see them. Oh, excellent. Sure. I've told Terry yeah. that, to me, if you want to do, if you're interested in World War II or in learning more about it, I've gone on a number of self-guided battlefield tours where I go and I stand there and I go, gee whiz, I wonder what happened here. But if you yeah. go with someone who actually knew what happened and who, who knows the history, I went to Sicily with, you probably know uh, um, David Patterson. David Patterson. Yeah, the, yep. he's a retired artillery general and, or, and a military historian. And the difference between standing on a hill and going, I wonder what happened here, and having a guy go, okay, on this hill, the Germans had their artillery and their mortars dug in on the reverse slope where we're standing. There were machine guns dug in. Down that road there, the Canadians came with their tanks and infantry, and then they turned and started heading right up towards where we're standing with an artillery barrage coming in at 100-yard intervals. And you could totally picture the whole thing unfolding sure. in your head, as opposed to, hey, I wonder what yeah, happened yeah. here. There's nothing like walking in the footsteps, right? There's yeah. nothing like it. The best primary source is the battlefield itself. There's da no doubt about it. David, is it as moving as I think it is to stand on a beach in Normandy? More. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Try Dieppe too. Yeah. Uh, David, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. I, you know, as, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a World War II junkie myself, and maybe we would all bore each other to death if we Yeah, we could. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a hell of a car ride. I, yeah, I'd be just peppering you with questions. I've, I'm, it's, I've always been fascinated by it. It's been, it's been fascinating having you. Thank, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate okay. it. Okay. Thanks, thank Dave. David O'Keefe. And, uh, as you promised, Ted, World War II, uh, history and hard to be how did you like that poseidon uh, I, I know you're interested in uh, world I, war ii I, while eh? you guys are talking i'm looking at uh all the the the, the navy fleets that were used back in world war ii from uh, other germans japanese yeah uh, some cool looking ass battleships yeah <laughs> yeah i would love uh, and i would love to do one of those uh one of those uh, sorry harry christian as he oh, said the fourth largest navy oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, i would love i would love to do uh one of those tours uh myself uh Wow. For, of World War Two, something like that. Well, that, there's uh, there's your guy. Yeah. Um, I um, I don't mean to be rude to David, but can you put the slide back up as we get ready to wrap up? Sorry. Can you put the slide back up as we get ready this? to wrap up, so that I yes, okay. so that we can point and ah, thank yes. our good friends at uh, Jaguar Land Rover. Oh, that's a good plug. 
Jaguar, I'll walk Jag- Jag- yeah. Jaguar Land Rover Laval. We also owe a couple of shout-outs to Matt Labonneur. Yes, we do. And the UPS store. That's correct. The UPS store is a new sponsor yes. for season two of Standing By, the Terry and Ted podcast. Our great and good friend, David Drucker, is, I don't think Chief Cook and Bottle Washer is, uh, is his exact title, <laughs> no. and he probably doesn't appreciate being referred to as such. Sorry, David. Uh, but David is the UPS Store Canada. They have 350 locations across Canada, uh, all franchised out to local business people. So you're dealing with someone from your community, and they have uh, home office solutions and home not office Yes, solutions. Yes, that's which their which you <laughs> <laughs> you might have some personal business yes. as you did. Yes, yeah, and, and a lot of people make the mistake. You know, they see the UPS logo on the, on you know on the strip mall, and they think, oh, that's where the trucks go. But what that is is the UPS Store Canada, and in that store is the guy who will solve all of your small business problems. Uh, and even if you're not a small business and you're a couple who are moving and forgot to pack a, a box of dishes like I did, um, they'll they'll handle that too. Everything from the size of box you need. They've got boxes. They've got uh, you know the annoying uh, popcorn uh, filler that they put. Yeah, in. Yeah, they sure. got they got plenty yeah, yeah. of that. Well, you need that. Yeah, they've got uh, the tape for everything, labels and you know paper for copy machines. Anything that has anything to do with uh, running a small business, and a lot of people do these days you know you've got merch that you need to ship from place to place you can bring them all there and they'll handle it for you it really is a one-stop solution whether you've got something that you've got to get out of the house and across the country or you've got to get your merchandise to customers who are waiting for it they are the solution the upsstore.ca now before we go and lie down tell us about the mattress we're going to lie down on (laughs) how's that for a segue Aren't we clever? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you because we're we're always uh, honest on the, the podcast. It's kind of hard when you're talking about World War II, and while I'm crying, yeah, it's pretty to segue into a mattress commercial. Well, it, it's hard <laughs> yeah. to interrupt that yeah. with I with understand. a thank you I to know. our sponsors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we find ourselves a little bit backed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and years ago. Uh, in the early 16, no, years ago, um, one day I was walking down the street. One day, <laughs> in the very month of May. The hell is happening? I don't know. I don't know. I'm enjoying it though. Do continue. <laughs> I was wandering down Sherbrooke Street and I wandered into a, a mattress store and it was called Matlabonneur. And uh, I was taken by two things right away. I was taken by the welcome I got, you know, as opposed to the grunt that you get in a lot of retail stores. You know, when you ask somebody a question at a real retail store and you get the, eh. Um, I was welcomed and uh, I was asked if I needed any help. And I said, you know, I'm just looking around at mattresses and stuff. And they asked me a couple of questions. I came away from it with, I thought, wow, what a great place to shop. And that store on Sherbrooke isn't there anymore because they outgrew the location. And uh, now uh, they have 18 locations all around the greater Montreal area. And if you're shopping for a mattress, if you're looking for a better night's sleep, if you decided that you cannot sleep on that bloody pillow anymore and you need new pillows, there's lots of places you can go. But if it's for anything that has to do with a good night's sleep, linens, pillows, mattresses, futons, the jump mattress, you can shop online, but I highly recommend the in-person a shopping experience you get there and as i've said lots of places to buy a mattress if you want to go to a place and walk around the washing machines and couches and lie on a mattress you can do that but before you make a purchase of any kind find the location near you and let the very very good people of this family-run business take care of you matt la bonheur at matt well done sir thank you very much i pulled that back from the very merry month of may uh, that was very funny though yeah. <laughs> 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 Thought I was going to break into a little yep. soft shoe. <laughs> Holy smokes, where's he going with that? <laughs> it's funny, eh? After working together all these years, every once in a while there's a curveball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Are you having the moment like I did yesterday? I'm, yeah, I am. Yeah. 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 I hope he doesn't stop talking because I don't have anything to say. <laughs> All right, I think we're done. Hey, we're done what? for the season. That yeah, was the well, season finale. I'm, I'm trying not to end it because I don't want it to I end. I know, yeah. It's one I of those. Don't know how to wrap it up. One of those things. But I think Poseidon wants yeah, to go home. Poseidon's He's like, yeah, wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Poseidon, thank you. Yeah. My pleasure, gentlemen, and thank you as well. Will you do me a favor, Poseidon? Depends what it is. Will you give Pantelis a big kiss for us? That well, okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll give him a hug. Yeah. Shake. How about we, a firm handshake? We were saying yesterday. You know, we we really are very grateful to Mike and Pentelis, but they don't they don't like being thanked. You know, they they get uncomfortable. Like Pentelis gets uncomfortable. He, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, you guys are great. Okay, it's all right. It's good. It's true, eh? Yeah, I'm a little bit the same uh, way as well. Yeah, you are too a little bit. Not as much as uh, the other guys. Is that a Greek thing or what? Uh, I don't know. Or is it just the nature of your personality? Yeah, maybe. eh? I think it's a little bit the nature. It's kind of like, can you take a compliment? Some people can't take a compliment. Like you tell someone. I have a hard time with compliments. Really, eh? Maybe that's that's what it is. Yeah, because I'll take a compliment. Tell me how great I am, would you? <laughs> it's weird though because I'm a cocky fucking bastard too. Yeah. But yeah. like, like I'll be like, like uh, I don't know, like. But if somebody, let's say I do something well, mm-hmm. I'm the type of person to be like, look how fucking well I do that, yeah. you know. But as soon as somebody points it out, it's weird for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know. Well, well that's, they, that's your that's bravado. Yeah. I believe that's called. Yeah, eh? and and it's the it's the same vibe that that we get from Pantelis, and you know, it's it's not like you know we, it's. It's not like he, you know, he fed hungry children in Africa, but for what he did for us, yeah. you know, it's it's a big deal for us yeah. because we wanted to do this and we were like, oh, I don't and know. we would have had no clue. Yeah, Left to our own devices, yeah, we we'd fuck been, up a one car yeah, funeral. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you, we would have been in our basements going, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, can you hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, our thanks to Pantelis and Mike Ward for uh, letting us into their empire. And um, I said to Ted uh, last year, I don't know, let's see if it works. Maybe, maybe, maybe people will like it. And according to whatever is Poseidon will tell us about, apparently people did like the podcast. So, so far, so good. And fingers crossed that maybe there will be a season three and we can get another free Jaguar or Land Rover for yep. the week because I like that. Yeah, let's do it in the summer, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, again, thanks to uh, Jaguar, Land Rover, Laval, Matelau Bonheur, the UPS Store Canada, and our friends at uh, the Mersons to uh, Cara and the uh, Celso and the family there. Um, thanks so much for your support. And listen, if you've been listening to the podcast, thank you. We appreciate that very much. Standing by the Terry and Ted podcast is sponsored by Jaguar Land Rover Laval, where the luxury is unmistakably British, but nobody wears a top hat or a monocle.